Are you a speed addict? Always in a rush? I suppose most of us are to a lesser or greater extent, but you know, Jesus wasn't. He lived an unhurried life. So how can we move out of the fast lane and into the rhythms of Jesus? And how do we find balance between our sense of calling and the call to rest? Coming up, we're going to head back to Israel in Bible times for a close-up look at an unhurried life. Join us. This is The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. And I'm John Geiger, always glad to be along for the ride. And Charlie, for somebody new to the program, we've got four segments. What are they about? Uh, John, we're taking them on a trip to Israel. Forget the COVID, forget all the, the problems with travel right now. Uh, we're <laughs> heading to Israel in, in one hour. Okay. And for the first part of it, we're going to introduce people to what's happening in the Middle East. We then meet with a fascinating guest uh, to find out some truth about the Middle East, about Jesus, about life there. We then answer questions. People always have questions, and I love talking about them. Uh, and then the, finally, we're going to go to one particular spot. Uh, And today it happens to be Megiddo, Armageddon. Hmm. And we're going to open God's Word and see why that spot is so significant. Well, the airlines do encourage you to fasten your seatbelts, and we're going to do the same because this thing's going to move fast. All right, let's dig into our current events segment, Charlie. Israel's success in vaccinating its population is now being criticized by some who are calling the program a discriminatory, even racist attack on the Palestinians. Charlie, what's behind these charges, and is Israel actually refusing to vaccinate the Arabs? You know, the charges are being made by the Palestinian Authority foreign minister. In fact, they were made at the UN. Uh, They've also been made by some members of Congress, but those reports are false and misleading. About 20% of Israel's citizens are Arab, and they're being offered the vaccine right along with the rest of Israel's citizens. In addition, Israel is giving the vaccine to Palestinians living in Jerusalem, even if they're not Israeli citizens. But under the Oslo Peace Accords, the Palestinian Authority is responsible to administer health care, including immunizations, to its own citizens. And they haven't even formally asked Israel for help. Critics claim the Palestinian Authority is strapped for cash. They can't afford the vaccine. However, for most of last year, they refused to accept the tax revenue Israel collects for them to protest President Trump's peace plan. They also continue to pay cash to convicted terrorists and their families, and the government's notoriously corrupt, with officials having siphoned off hundreds of millions of dollars for themselves and their families. So in many ways, their leadership is responsible for any cash shortage. In addition, Countries like Lebanon are refusing to vaccinate the Palestinians living there, and yet it's Israel who's being blamed. In fact, in that region, Israel is leading all other countries in the number of Palestinians and Arabs that have been vaccinated. Now, the percentage of Israeli Arabs and Palestinians who have been vaccinated is lower than the overall population, but that's largely due to misinformation in the Arab press over the vaccine safety. The bottom line is that Israel paid a premium price to receive this supply of vaccine that they've gotten, and it's making that vaccine available to all its citizens, Jewish and Arab. So the criticism against Israel really comes down to a form of anti-Semitism, which blames Israel for someone else's problems. Hmm. They developed a workable plan to obtain and distribute the vaccine, while most of the world, including the Palestinian Authority, did not. If we look beyond the false headlines to the actual facts, John, we see a country displaying both wisdom and compassion in working to meet the health needs of its citizens, Jewish and Arab. 
Well, as the Palestinians edge closer to national elections, old rivalries lurk just beneath the surface. So how are the plans for new elections falling into place? And could the elections still be sabotaged? Well, the the Palestinian Authority has announced that parliamentary elections will take place on May 22, while the election for president will happen on July 31. So in that sense, it looks like the elections are definitely moving forward. However, there already have been several surprises. 85-year-old President Abbas announced he would run again as the Fatah party's candidate for president. Uh, Many in the party wanted him to step down to make way for a new generation of leaders, but Abbas is concerned that one of his rivals might then run and win. Uh, But the biggest stir this last week happened when some leaders within Fatah and Hamas floated the idea of the two rival parties forming a joint list to run together for parliament. Fatah's controlled the West Bank while Hamas has controlled the Gaza Strip, and the two have been in conflict for the past 17 years and have never been able to form a unity government in spite of several attempts in the past. Some see this as an attempt by Abbas to freeze out his rivals within Fatah. Others believe it's an attempt to co-opt Hamas, which has a good chance actually of winning the election and ousting Fatah from power in the West Bank. But whatever the motive, many within Fatah are opposed to the idea and are threatening to run as independents in the parliamentary election if that happens. Uh, So watch to see if the two parties can agree to form a joint list or if this is going to become another attempt at the political equivalent of, of trying to mix oil and water, which don't go together. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is working us through a list of current events, top stories that have unfolded this week in the Middle East. Well, this past Thursday, Israel celebrated Tu Bishvat, sometimes called the New Year of the Trees. So exactly how do trees celebrate the New Year? Yeah, and that name in Hebrew literally means 15th of the month Shvat. So the name of the holiday is really the date. It's kind of like what we do when we celebrate the 4th of July. And it's known as the year of the trees, as you said. Well, in the dry summer months, you know, things turn brown and die over there. Uh, In the fall, the leaves fall from the trees. But when the winter rains begin, uh, the land begins rejuvenating. In fact, by late January or early February, which is when the 15th of Shvat occurs, the almond trees have begun to blossom. The grass has turned green. The anemones and other wildflowers are blooming. In short, the land begins to come alive. Now, in ancient Judaism, This date marked the dividing line in terms of tithes. Hmm. Fruit that ripened from Tu B'Shvat on was counted for the following year's tithes. But today, the the main focus is on ecological awareness and the planting of trees. John, it reminds me of a humorous card I once got from a friend. On the front, it said, in your honor, a tree has been planted in Israel. And then you opened it up and it said, your day to water it is Thursday. <laughs> so the, the key for this holiday is just to understand it's Israel's focus on the importance of trees to the national life. Even before the founding of the modern state of Israel, the Jewish inhabitants focused on reforesting the land and preserving trees as a national resource. Uh, quickly here, I want you to address the tree issue in Israel. You know, people hear about this land flowing with milk and honey, and then they go over there, and there's so many rocks and so few trees. There was a time, though, when there were more trees. Describe what happened briefly and uh, how things are today. 
Yeah, and it's a relatively modern occurrence. Uh, during the Ottoman Empire, many of the trees were cut down. Some were cut down to provide timber for the Hejaz Railway to Mecca and Medina. Others were cut down to avoid paying taxes because you were taxed on the number of fruit trees you owned. But in either case, uh, it denuded the land. And so uh, 150 years ago, it really was a desolate place. But it's been brought back because of what Israel has done. All right, let's go to a famous story in the Bible. We all know Goliath, or at least we think we do, the giant. Well, an archaeologist now suggests Goliath's height, as recorded in the Bible, was really a figure of speech and not an indication of his actual height. So what do we really know about the height of Goliath? Yeah, this is a two-part story. So let me start by stating the obvious. You know, here at Land in the Book, we believe Goliath was a real person along with David, and the battle between the two in 1 Samuel 17, well, it really did happen. So the first part of the question is the height of Goliath. How tall was he? Our Bibles, which are based on the Hebrew Masoretic text, say he was six cubits in a span. Well, that puts him about uh, nine and a half feet tall. The problem is that there are other ancient sources that say Goliath was four cubits in a span tall. Uh, The Septuagint does that, along with a manuscript of Samuel that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the account written by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Now, that would make Goliath six feet nine inches tall rather than nine feet six inches tall. And at first, 6'9 doesn't sound too tall, but remember, back then, the average Israelite would have been somewhere between 5 feet and 5 feet 4 in height. And if you were fighting a soldier that was a foot and a half taller, you would definitely call him a giant. Yeah. It'd be like us today, you know, going up against Shaquille O'Neal, you know, if he had body armor and was holding a javelin and a sword. Uh, But that leads to the second part of the question. Why would an archaeologist think the text wasn't referring to an actual person? And the answer is, he's been working on the site of ancient Gath. He believes, based on his measurements there, that the cubit was 21 inches rather than 18. And he found that the walls of ancient Gath were four cubits and a span thick, according to his new definition of a cubit. And as a result, he's convinced the story has just gotten mixed up over time. And it was referring to the size of Gath city walls, not the size of their champion. Now, I can't accept that theory, John. First, there's a lot of history on how big a cubit was. And so I'm not sure about his idea of it being three inches longer. But more importantly, I don't see anything in the Bible that even remotely suggests that it's referring to the city wall and not the size of Goliath. Uh, The text clearly points to Goliath being 6'9 or 9'6, but uh, this is a case where I think we need to stick with what the Bible says. All right, and we're going to do just that in a conversation coming up next on The Land and the Book. A speed addict, is that you? Well, some thoughts that'll help you maybe move into a little bit of a slower life lane, into the rhythms of Jesus. We're going to go back to Israel and look at his life next on The Land and the Book. Don't go away. More to come on today's broadcast. Thanks for your company. busy, really busy. So you walk fast, talk fast, work fast, eat fast, you even relax fast. (laughs) But somehow the task list never gets shorter and your speed never gets slower. Is that how Jesus lived? If not, why is it that's how many of us live? What can we learn if we travel back to Bible times and follow the distinctly unhurried sandals of Jesus? Hope and help for those of us sick of the fast track. 
That's where we're headed today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, promising you're going to love what's coming up. Alan Fadling is the founder and president of Unhurried Living. Their vision is to inspire Christian leaders around the world to rest deeper so they can live fuller and lead better. He and his wife, Jem, speak and consult with churches and national organizations. Alan is the author of An Unhurried Leader and the book we're looking at today, An Unhurried Life. Alan, it's good to have you with us, and let's get right to it because we're in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, well, I know what you mean. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I, we were sharing just before uh, you came on that uh, the title of this thing, An Unhurried Life, is just so attractive. It's it's what I want, you know? Mm-hmm. It's what I want, too. You know, I wrote the book, and I'm still on the journey. I, I love the honesty of your opening chapter. You admit, quote, I'm a recovering speed addict, and I don't mean the drug. I'm talking about the inner pace of my life. Well, that's a lot of us, Alan, but uh, do you find that one of the biggest issues here is that many of us honestly don't have a problem with our NASCAR racetrack lives? Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I often think we have a kind of push-me-pull-you relationship with hurry. We sort of, part of us feels like when we hurry, we're important, we're valuable, people like us, people admire us. And then another part of us, I think many times, kind of feel exhausted and overwhelmed and like our lives are too full. So I think we've got a kind of mixed relationship to hurry, at least a lot of us do. Yeah. I, I think, though, that a lot of us see no problem with the speed. Uh, you know, we're almost... Mm proud of our full outlook calendar and, and the pace that it demands of us. Yeah, I think there is a lot of that. You know, if, if we live in a culture where you assume you are what you do or you are what you have or you are what people say about you, then your goal in life is going to do more, get more, and impress more people. And that's kind of a motor for hurry, and it's one of the reasons I think we have a tendency to overvalue our hurry. In the book, you describe a conversation with a, a friend of yours uh, and he, he was talking with Dallas Willard, where he asked Dallas to describe the character of Jesus in one word. Let us in on that conversation. Yeah, so they were talking. Dallas had a way sometimes of saying a sentence that would be like a time bomb. It would go off in your head uh, some moments later. And after a long conversation, Dallas said, you know, if I had just a single word to describe Jesus, I think the word I might choose was relaxed. I remember when my friend told me that, my first response was, I don't think that's good. I, I don't know if Jesus <laughs> as relaxed is a vision of him I can say amen to. And so it took me a long time to kind of reflect and chew and decide, actually, that is the most remarkable description of him. And I spent a lot of time in the Gospels coming to the conviction that it really was a beautiful and true vision of Jesus that I wanted to more embrace. You observed Jesus seemed frustratingly unhurried. <laughs> on his way to heal the synagogue official's daughter or to visit his sick yeah. friend Lazarus who, who died during Jesus' two-day delay. I hear some people saying, well, that's well and good for Jesus who had all these miracles up his sleeve, but me, I'm just overloaded with projects and deadlines. How do you respond? Yeah, so I think that one of the things I want to say is I really think Jesus comes to show us what a human life could look like, that he does what he does in dependence on the Spirit. And Admittedly, he does that perfectly. None of us do. But part of that um, dependence on the Spirit to live the life he lives, to do the things the Father's telling him to do, to, to say the sorts of things the Father is wanting to say, part of that is about what I would call the pace of grace. It's a slower pace, but my argument is I actually think it's a more fruitful one. I just don't think our busy is always as productive as we think it is. Hmm. 
Was Jesus really relaxed? Was he really unhurried? That's our conversation today with Alan Fadling, who has written An Unhurried Life. You state God's greatest commandment to us isn't get more things done, but to love him with the whole of our energies, capacities, and passions, and to extend that love to others. And love isn't rushed. Bingo. So why do so many of us, Alan, uh, live our lives as if the missing beatitude is, blessed are the busy, for they shall achieve more? Yeah. Well, it, that's, that's really it, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's a cultural assumption. For example, if you were to look in a dictionary, look up the word fast, you're going to see pretty much nothing but positive sounding definitions. Look up the word slow, and you're not going to see anything very encouraging there. And so there's a cultural value uh, about sort of hurry equals productivity. Hurry mm-hmm. means my life matters more. But I think Jesus slows down to get the things that matter done, like the great commandment being love God, and love people. Uh, this year being as crazy as it's been, one of the things I keep reminding myself is, look, I am here to love God back. I am here to love people well. I'm not great at that. I'm mm-hmm. learning, but I find that if I slow down, I'm better at that. And if that's really the great commandment, then maybe if love is patient, then me slowing down enables me to do what matters most better. You point out that productivity is not a sin. It's not. It's the attitudes behind our work that can be our undoing. You've just pointed to this uh, matter of slowing down. Maybe that's one of the answers, but how do we find balance between our sense of calling and the call to rest? Yeah, so for me, this is where um, I think Jesus' favorite image of collaborating with him in our lives and in our work was this image of a yoke. And I think the idea of a yoke, at least as I understand the way Jesus uses it, is that he's inviting us into his yoke. He doesn't hand us a yoke, and we sort of throw it over our own shoulders and then run off as fast as we can to pull something, solve something, do something. I really think that yoke is an invitation to communion and to collaboration, that he's inviting us into his life and into his work. And again, I think the pace of how he lives and the pace of how he works is more fruitfully unhurried. So that's, uh, it, it, that's the pacing that I think Jesus invites us into. And again, my argument uh, over the years here more recently has been, I really think that's more fruitful. I think I get what matters done uh, more than just all the to-do lists I check off, you know, day to day to day. Okay, you're getting dangerously close to a very sensitive spot in my heart and soul here, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me relate to you. Being being task-driven and maybe just plain driven, uh, I, I struggle sometimes to engage with people at a level that I know I'm called to be engaged at. And yet in those moments where I do slow down and I do take the time to ask and listen to someone's lengthy story, why are they always lengthy? <laughs> <laughs> well, this or that aspect yeah. of their life. Uh, in the end, I walk away knowing I've done the right thing. I've made the right choice. Uh, but yeah. still, I, I feel this tension with the junk I didn't get done. Speak to me, brother. Yeah. I feel that too. You know, I'm a structure guy. I love to complete tasks. I love the feeling of crossing a finish line multiple times a day, you know, finishing whatever it was I'd planned to do. It's just that I find that when I'm in that hurried interior mode, I sort of imagine my life is full of a bunch of things I need to manage. And when I slow down a little bit inside, what I realize actually is that all those tasks, all those projects are somehow or another 
helping people. That's what makes them valuable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just that little tweak, that little change of perspective that I'm still a guy who likes to get things done, but why those things matter isn't just getting them done. It's how those things one way or another help or bless people. And so that's been one of the values of slowing down, even with my sort of get it done. uh, I wouldn't call myself type A, but, but I like to accomplish. I like to solve. I like to complete but it's just helpful to, for me to remember why I'm doing that. Alan Fadling is the founder and president of Unhurried Living, whose vision is to inspire Christian leaders around the world to rest deeper so they can live fuller and lead better. Well, let me take this to a very practical level. You've admitted that you like getting things done. I like getting things done. We've talked about the importance of slowness. So does that mean at a sort of bottom line level, we need to just put less stuff down for our daily goals or create more holes in our schedules because we know that if we're living life well, if we're living this unhurried life, we are going to be engaging with someone who we don't even know we're going to be talking with maybe at the moment when we lay out the day. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Leave some, leave some gaps? Well, it's a fair question. I, I do think you might decide that, you know, maybe you're trying to pack too much into a day, but in a lot of ways, what I prefer to say is that, um, For example, Dallas Willard would often say, really, there is a difference between busy and hurried, for example. Busy, that is your calendar. We have days that are at times busy. Jesus did, too. Sometimes the crowds just kept coming moment after moment from sunrise to sunset. Busy is your calendar. Hurried is your soul. And so what I want to say is, yeah, you might decide that you're trying to pack too much into your calendar, but more so, can you engage whatever is before you with a more unhurried heart? with a little more patience, a little more gentleness, a little more attentiveness to the person whose path you're crossing. That to me is a more helpful thing than trying to somehow arbitrarily figure out how to, you know, just do less Mm -hmm. because, you know, I, like you said, I like to get things done, but if I can do them in a different spirit than that hurried, anxious, driven, sometimes easily irritated, easily frustrated way that I've sometimes had, that's better for me. And that's better for the people I'm, Uh, I'm working with or working for. What's the one-third rule, and why is it important? Yeah, that's a great idea that a friend of mine um, shared with me, uh, a former colleague. The one-third rule is the idea that if you happen to be a person who's leading something, uh, and by leading I don't mean you're the CEO of a company or the senior pastor of a big church or anything, but just you're a, um, a friend leading a small group, whatever, The idea of the one-third rule is to take time in the midst of the gathering you have to actually be the people of God, to actually engage together in being in God's presence, enjoying who God is. We we have sometimes this odd habit of talking about Jesus like he's not in the room. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd thing. We know that he's Emmanuel, where that's a reality we're remembering. And yet sometimes we can forget that he's actually the most important presence in any gathering, whether it's a board meeting or it's a family drive to the next errand or whatever it may be. So the idea of the one-third rule is just to always make space to remember that God's with you and to remember how much that matters and how good that is and how much uh, grace that brings then to all of the moments, all of our busy moments. Well, not everybody's going to read this book, An Unhurried Life, 
or do all or even most of the things you're suggesting, what do you think is the one thing, the one lifestyle tweak that might bring about the most needed change for the speed-addicted listener, Alan? Well, I think maybe the way I would put it is this. There's this little line in the Gospel of Luke, for example, chapter 5, verse 16. It says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. I joke when I'm speaking about it that I don't know that that line was in my Bible for the first 10 years of my Christian life. I'm being a little <laughs> facetious. I don't think it's changed any, but, but I just think I don't remember anyone mentioning that that was a habit of Jesus, mm. that he often, it says, often withdrew to lonely places. So I think the one thing I would say is to help combat our tendency to think that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions or in the abundance of our activities or in the abundance of how many people are impressed by us, taking moments to stop, to step out into your backyard for 60 seconds and just look at things in your backyard that God made and say thank you, or to take a minute in the midst of a busy day and just offer a word of praise or thanks that, God, you are the most important person in this day. Your presence matters more than my presence does. Sometimes it's just those little step backs. And then, you know, sometimes maybe take a little longer if you can to just be in the presence of God. The, the, the thing I'm trying to say is it, it strikes me that we're very clear that the Christian life is a relationship with God. And so if that's actually true, then what are some things we're doing to tend that relationship, even enjoy that relationship? And for me, that often involves just taking a step back at times to not do things for God first, but just be in the presence of God and enjoy the presence of God. Following Jesus' rhythms of work and rest, that's Alan Fadling, who's written An Unhurried Life. Wish we didn't have to hurry off, Alan, but we're going to do just that. Thank you for your time today and those beautiful insights. Great to be with you, John. Thanks. Hey, Charlie Dyer steps up to the mic. He's got questions on the way. Yours is one of them, I hope. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. pleasure to have your company today at The Land and The Book. We get the fact that you have choices in what you do with your listening time and, and your investment with us, we hope, is well rewarded. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And what's this uh, next segment about, Charlie, for somebody who's newer to the program? Uh, it's, it's where people have questions as they're reading the Bible and they just want to know, how do I find an answer to this? If they've got questions, send them to us uh, and we'll do our best to provide an answer for them. All right. And that's what Bernard has done. His question, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, Moabites were banned from entering the congregation of Israel. So how does Ruth enter? Yeah, and I think the best answer is that God extended special grace to Ruth because of her remarkable statement of faith. You know, she wasn't the typical Moabite. If people remember what she said in Ruth chapter 1, and when she said to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Now, I see that as being similar to what someone does today to become a naturalized citizen of our country. In essence, Ruth ceased being a Moabite and became a convert to the God of Israel at that point. And I think it also matches uh, later what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 56. He said, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And then he goes on and says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So in short, I think God extended his grace to Ruth 
in response to her amazing statement of faith. She chose to identify with God and with his people, and God promised to allow such individuals to approach him in faith. A question from Paul. He says, I sure love your program. I listen every Saturday. And the question, do we, you, or anyone else know which stone is the cornerstone of the temple? Can we see it today? I'd love to see it. God bless you guys at the land and the book. Yeah, well, the cornerstone of the temple cannot be seen today, and there's a good reason for that. When the disciples pointed out the buildings on the Temple Mount to Jesus, he responded by saying, I'll tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Uh, When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, they tore the temple and its surrounding buildings apart. They threw the stones off the platform into the surrounding valley. Now, some of those stones were used later for building some of the Muslim buildings that were in that area, and others have been uncovered in the jumble where they fell, but no one really knows which one of those stones was actually the cornerstone. Kristen writes, I was at a conference recently, and one of the professors said it would be a sin to keep Passover since Jesus already fulfilled it by being the Passover lamb and perfect sacrifice. He and his disciples could keep it, however, because it was before Jesus' death. Now, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, especially since Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So what's the right explanation? Yeah, I think saying it's a sin to keep Passover is an overstatement. And now the reason I say that is many churches hold Passover celebrations that illustrate how the feast points to Christ. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul specifically said, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. I think the key is recognizing we're not obligated to celebrate the Passover or other Jewish feasts in this current era. As Paul wrote in Colossians 2, uh, don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or in regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Those are shadows of the things that were to come. Uh, So what Paul had in mind is Passover was one of those religious festivals, and it's important to recognize we're not required to celebrate them. But let me give two other points that help balance this out. In Romans 14, Paul talks about one person considering one day more sacred than another, another man considering every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul's saying that those who set aside special days, like the Sabbath or even Mm -hmm. Passover, can do so if their motive's proper, even if it's not a requirement for this age. Also, in Acts chapter 20, we're told Paul was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, one of the three feasts when God required Jews to gather before him. Though it doesn't specifically mention Passover, it does suggest Paul didn't see any problem in celebrating a Jewish festival like Pentecost in the church age. Now, the second point, in regard to the last question, uh, the, the Lord's table or communion, well, that has the same function in the church today that Passover did for the Jewish people. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul mentions uh, that uh, this is to celebrate the Lord's uh, death until he comes again. So it, we do have, in one sense, a, a function today that, that serves like Passover did for the Jewish people. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. It's a pleasure to look at your questions, things that have made you scratch your head as you go through Scripture, like this one from Gary, who's from Hillsboro, Tennessee. He says, as always, I enjoy The Land and the Book, primarily by podcast. A while back, I started reading through a chronological Bible, which I'm enjoying very much. I'm currently reading in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and As I read sections, I follow up with the Moody Bible commentary to enhance my study. Well, as I was reading about the second battle between King Ahab and Ben-Hadad, which took place on the plains, uh, the Moody Bible commentary notes that Aphek was a few miles east of the Sea of Galilee, I did a double take 
as this would seem to put the battle in the current southern Golan Heights, which is by no means a plains. So I pulled out my trusty new moody atlas of the Bible and navigated to the relevant maps, but I'm still confused. Your thoughts? Yeah, and uh, I'll say I, I want to first uh, applaud you. You're doing Bible study exactly the way it should be done, uh, looking at maps, looking at uh, the details. Now, now, here's the answer. There are indeed two, in fact, some would even suggest three, places named Aphek in the land. Uh, the one connected with Israel and the Philistines, you remember when they captured the Ark of the Covenant? That was on the western side of Israel, about nine miles from the Mediterranean, just a little bit northeast of Tel Aviv. There's a major spring there today. Uh, it's where the Yarkon River begins. And in New Testament times, that was named Antipatris, which is connected with where the soldiers took Paul by night when he was spirited out of Jerusalem and taken to Caesarea. But the second Aphek is located about four miles east of the Sea of Galilee on the Golan Heights. And it is a bit of a plain up there once you get up on top of the heights. Uh, there's a modern Israeli town nearby named Aphek which preserves the name of the biblical city. And that's the town that's mentioned in connection with the war between uh, Ahab and Ben-Hadad. Uh, once you climb to the top of the Golan Heights, as I said, the area becomes this large dotted plain with volcanic peaks. So uh, having lost a battle in the mountainous part of Israel, uh, Ben-Hadad's advisors suggested that he fight on the plains. In other words, uh, let's get the king of Israel up here on this flatter country where we'll have the advantage. And that was what was taking place in that account. But the best way to tell the two apart is to look carefully at the enemies facing Israel. The Philistines came from the west, and that's why the, the Aphek uh, connected with the book of Samuel is on the west side of the country. Uh, Ben-Hadad, and he's on the northeast side, and that's why the Aphek in connection with that battle is uh, east of the Sea of Galilee. Our website is thelandandthebook.org, where you'll find a link that can get your question to Dr. Charlie Dyer. Here's one from Bill. He says, I very much enjoy the program and am absolutely amazed at Amazing Israel. Us too, Bill. He says, there's an organization that solicits donations from both Christians and Jews to help Jews in need. I believe the leader is an Orthodox Jew, not a Messianic Jew. That leader asks for prayer requests from those interested so that the leader can take those requests and pray for them at the wall. Now, if that leader is a faithful Jew and does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and we believe that no one comes to the Father except through his son Jesus, will God hear and honor the Jewish leader's prayer? Yeah, I'll start this way. The short answer is that since God's omniscient, he does hear the prayers of everyone. However, the logic behind uh, this individual's appeal, and he's obviously appealing for funds as well, is flawed. He's suggesting that since his prayers are being made at the Western Wall, they're somehow more effective than prayers made elsewhere. And that's just not true. The heart attitude of an individual making a prayer is far more important than the physical location mm -hmm. where the prayer is made. You know, on the negative side, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. On the positive side, James said in James 5, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So I think you're right to raise a question about the individual's heart attitude and his personal relationship to Jesus. If the rabbi hasn't placed his trust in Jesus, well, then he hasn't received forgiveness and cleansing for sin. And Jesus did say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So while God might physically hear that prayer, his prayer doesn't have any inherent authority or power simply because it was spoken in Jerusalem or placed on a piece of paper at the Western Wall. I would prefer the invitation to individual believers in Hebrews 4.16, where he wrote, 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We already have Jesus and the Holy Spirit taking our requests before the Father. Uh, Nothing is more effective than that. Real quickly, Judy wants to know, in the Old Testament times, did single women or widows who had no husbands also have to offer sacrifices to the Lord? Well, on some occasions, women were specifically commanded to offer sacrifices. In in Leviticus 12, Moses said, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering. So, yes, there are times when women who didn't have a husband even were to offer sacrifices to the Lord. I'm looking forward to Charlie's devotional. It's next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Hi, John Geiger here from The Land and the Book. Nice to have you with us today. So who are your favorite authors? Now, I confess, I'm all over the map. I like literature from different uh, eras, different authors. I love classics by Charles Dickens and Alexandre Dumas. Uh, He wrote The Three Musketeers. What about Leo Tolstoy? Or some more modern favorites, John Grisham, Clive Cussler. Who do you like to read? Well, the one and only Mark Twain once visited Israel, wrote a fascinating book that Charlie Dyer is about to read an excerpt from. I don't want to give it all away, though. Let's let Charlie move ahead with today's devotional. What you got, Charlie? In 1869, Mark Twain visited the Holy Land with a group of Christian pilgrims. Uh, he recorded uh, that uh, trip, and his, his uh, record is hilarious. But at times, it rises to the profound. At one point, Twain stood in the Jezreel Valley, very near ancient Megiddo, and focused on all the armies that had gathered in that valley. The plain of Esdralon, the battlefield of the nations, only sets one to dreaming of Joshua and Ben-Hadad and Saul and Gideon, Tamerlane, Tancred, Coeur de Lyon, and Saladin, the warrior kings of Persia, Egypt's heroes, and Napoleon, for they all fought here. If the magic of the moonlight could summon from the graves of forgotten centuries in many lands the countless myriads that have battled on this wide, far-reaching floor and array them in a thousand strange costumes of their hundred nationalities and send the vast hordes sweeping down the plain, splendid with plumes and banners and glittering lances, I could stay here an age to see the phantom pageant. But... Unless you've been to Israel, the Jezreel Valley is simply a name from the Bible, one of many that has no particular significance. Yet for those like Mark Twain who've stood on ancient Megiddo and gazed out across the valley, its strategic location becomes clear. To the west, the valley reaches to the Mediterranean at modern-day Haifa, and to the east, it connects with the Jordan Valley. Just next to where we're standing is the International Highway, the ancient roadway that stretched from Egypt to Mesopotamia. It enters the Jezreel Valley near Megiddo after threading its way through Mount Carmel. We can still watch a parade of cars and trucks traveling north along a road used by the Egyptian army 3,500 years ago. Carl Rasmussen has described the Jezreel Valley as the stage on which the armies of the world have made their entrances and exits. And certainly that's what Mark Twain must have had in mind as he stared out over the same vista we're seeing today. 
But the spot we're standing has more than just historical significance. The word hill in Hebrew is har. And in the book of Revelation, har Megiddo, transliterated as Armageddon, points to a still future gathering of armies at this very site. When most hear the word Armageddon, they think of the final battle of the ages, the ultimate spot where good will triumph over evil. But I'd like us to walk off the hill with a slightly different perspective. To me, the hill of Megiddo marks the spot where evil, at least temporarily, seems to triumph over good. To understand why I say this, we need to visit Megiddo on two separate occasions. Our first visit takes place near the end of the kingdom of Judah. Judah's last good king, Josiah, sits on the throne, but the dark clouds of war are gathering on the horizon. To the northeast, Assyria and Babylon are fighting for control over Mesopotamia. The once great Assyrian empire is on the ropes. The army of Babylon has already destroyed the city of Nineveh, and now its army is on the move to attack what's left of that empire. While to the southwest, Egypt is on the rise, hoping to profit from this power struggle. The mighty army of Egypt is on the march north to rescue the Assyrian army, stop the Babylonians, and expand her power and influence along the way. Good King Josiah saw the Egyptian advance as a mortal threat to his kingdom. Though the Egyptians marched up the coastal highway and away from Jerusalem, Josiah mobilized his army and rushed north to stop them at the only spot where his smaller army might have a strategic advantage, at Megiddo, where he hoped to bottle up the Egyptian army at the narrow pass that carved its way through Mount Carmel. Josiah's ill-fated military campaign ultimately cost him his life. Second Kings 23 describes the encounter this way, and King Josiah went to meet him, and when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. And his servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Megiddo is the spot where Josiah lost his life and where the kingdom of Judah lost its independence. But if our first visit to Megiddo took us back in time 2,600 years, our second visit to Megiddo takes us there at a time that's still future, a time when it seems as if all the world will fall under the control of Satan and the forces of evil. What many call the Battle of Armageddon is not actually described as a battle in the Bible. The book of Revelation actually pictures it as a staging area for the armies of the world. Satan, the Antichrist, and his false prophet send their demonic emissaries into all the world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. Armageddon is the gathering spot the spot where the armies joined forces to battle against Israel and eventually against God himself. Megiddo represents the high watermark of Satan's plan for global conquest. The armies of the world ultimately unite behind his false Messiah to attack Jerusalem. According to the prophet Zechariah, the final battle takes place in Jerusalem. But just when victory seems within his grasp, Jesus will descend from heaven to the Mount of Olives to destroy the invaders and to rescue his followers. An army that appears unstoppable when it gathers at Megiddo will ultimately be vanquished by the true King and Messiah when he returns from heaven to Jerusalem. 
Knowing how the story ends gives us a different perspective as we get ready to leave the hill of Megiddo. Both in history and in prophecy, Megiddo pictures a place where evil seems to triumph over good. But that victory is only temporary. Judah's last good king might have died at Megiddo, but we know the ultimate king from the line of David will someday return to rule over Israel and all the other nations of the world. Isaiah 9-7 pictures his reign. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. But what does Megiddo, this piece of historical real estate, have to do with you? Perhaps it's this. We all experience times in life when it seems like the wrong side wins. Times when the righteous are persecuted while the guilty go free. When the honest get cheated by the dishonest. When crime does seem to pay and honesty doesn't seem to be the best policy. When you're facing a time like that, remember Megiddo. God knows what's taking place. And at the proper time, God will intervene to right all wrongs, reward the faithful, and punish the wicked. We've not yet reached the last page of the story, but it's coming. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus reminded his followers that his arrival was imminent, that it could happen at any time. He said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Knowing Jesus could return at any time helps us remain faithful through our own day-to-day Har-Megiddo experiences, those times when the forces of evil seem to unite against us. Whatever you're facing, remember this, Jesus knows, he cares, and someday he'll return to set everything right. In the meantime, stand firm, don't get discouraged, and keep looking up. Wow, boy, there's almost a sermon there, Charlie. Stand firm, don't get discouraged, and keep looking up. Three points right there. And maybe you'd like to hear today's devotional again or the entire broadcast. It's available right now at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org, where you'll also find information on past guests, future guests, and more, thelandandthebook.org. We invite you to check out our podcast there as well. It's a handy way to share the program with others or hear it at your own convenience. And give a click to the Books tab there. You can look at books that Charlie has written or I've written, all at thelandandthebook.org. Hey, could we invite you to say thank you to the management at this station for making airtime available to this program? They've got lots of people knocking on the door, and so your, your thank you is a huge thing. And so we say thank you for your thank you, all right? Email them. Uh, send them a text. Maybe it's a phone call or a good old-fashioned postcard or letter. I can promise you it'll be much appreciated. That'll wrap things up for today's broadcast. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.